Jesus of Nazareth did not get crucified for being nice. For example, consider today's gospel text. There are beautiful hallmark cards portraying the good shepherd. Can't you just see the idyllic Jesus, blonde hair, blue eyes from Norway, with snuggly sheep and rainbow ponies in the distance? Less common, and I'm problematizing that to be clear, I'm problematizing that idyllic Jesus, less common would be a card from today's gospel. Congratulations on casting out Satan. Wishing you all the best on today's exorcism. Good work. Your family thinks you're insane and wants to restrain you. And also, I know that you guys really care about biblically-based, gospel-based preaching, and, and we do too. And I'd like to thank you in advance for sharing your feedback more constructively than the scribes do. He has Beelzebul, and he works by the ruler of demons. Now, if I could just give you some constructive feedback on your constructive feedback, it's easier to hear critique if you begin with a compliment. So good job casting out demons today. Have you considered that your very existences of Satan might want to work on that for next time? That's an example of the kind of feedback that's a little bit more constructive to hear. So tongue-in-cheek, we have a lot happening in today's gospel. The tone is biting and combative and aggressive. So what is the context that leads Jesus to this sarcastic, sardonic, almost mean tone with the scribes? And where might we find good news in this text? To begin, it may help to remember that we've been dwelling in John's gospel for the past several months. John writes a meditation in the shadow of the cross with flowing discourse and gorgeous songs about love and discipleship, and sometimes a sentence is a page long. Mark is completely different. Mark is fast, breathless, apocalyptic. He uses the word immediately 76 times. In Mark's gospel, people run instead of walking. John utters discourse on the theological possibilities of divine love, and Mark packs a punch. So if you felt a little whiplash this morning... That's because you've been paying attention. We just changed Gospels, and it's completely different. And a key piece of context from Mark's Gospel can be found in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news, the Gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Do you hear Mark's urgency in this text? Cousin John has already gone to the dungeon from which he will not escape. Jesus is on the move, coming to the backwater places, towns like Galilee. Why? To proclaim the gospel, the good news of God, which is an inbreaking into the world. And what is that news? That the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, one of the core themes in Mark's text, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, turn, and believe this. Indeed, Mark's project is to tell of the inbreaking of a new age, best understood from his perspective as the incursion of a new regime into explicitly enemy territory. In other words, God's kingdom is so different from the brutal and draconian Roman Empire that forms the backdrop for Jesus' ministry, that conflict 
is inevitable. This is the backdrop for Jesus' claim, a house divided against itself cannot stand. You must either be part of God's kingdom or the kingdoms of this world, but you have to choose, and you cannot have both. Remember that Mark is writing to an apocalyptic Jewish community that has already endured years of Roman persecution. They explicitly wait for a warrior king to restore their political and their military power. And so as readers of today's text, we are already three chapters deep into Mark's story. And the clash with the religious authorities, here the scribes, is already smoldering. Indeed, sparks fly in today's text. The scribes accuse Jesus of working for the devil. Make no mistake, they are questioning his authority. Them's fighting words, because if Jesus is not working on behalf of God, then maybe his family is right. Maybe he's gone mad and needs to be restrained. Worse, then his authority would come from the source of evil. But Jesus holds his ground. How can, how can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, look at what I do as well as what I say. I am casting out evil and healing and preaching a gospel of love and justice, compassion and forgiveness. By definition, I cannot be evil incarnate. And if a house divided against itself, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So as, as I search for good news in this admittedly tricky gospel, consider tying up the strong man within the context of two kingdoms that cannot exist together. For God's kingdom to break in, God has to contest and correct the kingdoms of this world. Strong men will be restrained. Scholar David Jacobson puts it this way, the weird parable of the tied-up strongman is gospel, is good news, because, not because Jesus is being nice, nor because Jesus is respecting the authorities, it is gospel because it portrays Jesus himself in the struggle for God's coming reign, the inbreaking of God's kingdom. The good news here is that God is not far off and disengaged, but already in the struggle. There is a beautiful grace in the notion that God is not pleased, that people are in bondage, subject to illness, mired in something less than life. I take comfort from that. The good news invites us into this central gospel struggle, which has already begun with Jesus and his persistent ministry of healing, casting out demons, and unmistakable forgiveness. The good news is that God is in the struggle. And it's not lost on us that Abraham Lincoln draws on today's text to proclaim that a house divided against itself cannot stand. I'd like to thank our resident historian, Joe Crispino, for his summary of the situation. The year is 1858. Lincoln runs as a Republican for the Illinois Senate seat in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. Lincoln opposes the introduction of slavery into the expanding Western territories. And it should be said that in the United States in 1858, to oppose, uh, to oppose slavery 
is not necessarily to believe in racial equality. That was part of the moral blindness of Lincoln and many anti-slavery Republicans of the day. And still, Lincoln understands that slavery is a great moral evil. Douglas, the Democrat, does not believe that. That people living in the territories should decide whether they will live in a slave or free state. And Lincoln's iconic house-divided speech comes at the close of the Republican convention, drawing on this text and his devout Christian faith, Lincoln unequivocally opposes the evil of slavery. Do you know what happens? He loses the election. 1858, Stephen Douglas becomes the Democratic senator from Illinois, goes on to encourage the expansion of slavery in the Western territories. But what happens two years later? 1860, Lincoln wins the Republican nomination for president and leads the country in a monumental first step toward equality, freeing all those who had been enslaved. He does not finish the work of equality. He's a broken hero with flaws for sure. And yet the Emancipation Proclamation is the down payment on the house of racial equity and healing. Do you know what historians call that famous 1858 speech? They call it the House Divided speech. This is his breakout moment on the national stage. It's like Barack Obama's 2004 speech. It's when everyone knew who he was. And I think it's interesting, and this is the point I'm trying to make, that one of the great leaders in our history gave one of his most important speeches in his career to define his stance unequivocally for the party and for the country based on today's gospel. Because God was in the struggle for Lincoln, too, an imperfect person striving toward justice with mistakes, absolutely, and there were other important folks working with him. But Lincoln saw God in the struggle and used this text to make that case. The struggle for decency and kindness and justice and compassion was the work of God. And we, too, are called to that struggle, even with humility. Lincoln's faith gives him his courage, but I think, really importantly, it also gives him his humility. He says, I have been driven to my knees many times by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. This from the leader of the free world. And later, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My concern is to be myself on God's side. May this be our concern as well. For there is good news in the struggle because God is in the struggle with us. How might God be calling you to the struggle even today? Amen.